vaccine i'm steve and i'm i'm not dead i'm still here i just took some time to to move into a new house so uh yeah coming to you live from a a basement with a bunch of boxes and shit thrown everywhere uh packing peanuts from where my cat knocked over a box of seven dvds so i'm living my best life jake how you doing doing fine steve you should be uh severing ties with that cat if you ask me Wow. Is that a I bird mean, I just heard? <laughs> uh, also joining us, Sean Glennis is back. Hello, everyone. How you doing, buddy? I, I hear the, uh, the hot jams you got going in the background right now. That's right. You got a problem with it? I got, I got no problem. What's the music du jour? What are, you, what are you bumping? I don't know. It sounds very strange. It's like Bruce Hornsby, maybe? No, but I have been listening to uh, uh, Bruce Hornsby album from 1986. Uh, what was his big song? The Way We Are or whatever? The, the Way It Is. The Way It, the is. Way it is. Yeah, the, it's, a, it's not a bad album. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't speak to you. I've never, I've never gone down that, uh, that yacht rock road. I was, not expecting, I was not expecting to like it, and, um, but uh, I like, listened to it a couple times. I was like, oh, it was kind of nice. He put out a record a couple years ago and uh, Optimism Vaccine contributor Stephen Coleman was like, dude, you got to listen to the new Hornsby record. <laughs> and uh, per usual, I did not. But Coleman's always right. He's Hornsby always, had... especially like things uh, whenever he's just like, listen to this thing that you're going to think is really bad, but I promise it's good. He's always right. So good on him. I'll give it a shot. Uh, Jack Easton is here as well. Yes, I am. I've not been listening to Bruce Hornsby, sadly. That's a that's a goddamn shame. Listen, man, no no real special guest today. I guess just like my triumphant return. You guys think it's weird that when I look at like our top downloaded episodes, it's always shit that I'm not on. Well, <laughs> correlation is not causation, Steve. So I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> I'm just I'm 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 teeing you guys up to just completely demolish me. But thank you for your kindness, Jake. I appreciate that. Uh, anyways, <laughs> we're, uh, this is episode three of our, uh, Troy Hawk, uh, I don't know, retrospective, uh, deep dive into his filmography. Uh, basically we're just doing four episodes and we pick four movies per episode and, uh, yeah, we're just trying to go through as much of his, his films as possible. So this is kind of an odd episode because there's almost a theme here, um, we, we were digging into some of his really early films, and then randomly there's there's one from the year 2000, which is not one of his early films, but we're close to a theme. Although, if I had to, you know, give a theme to this episode, maybe it would be pest control. Is that is that fair? So we've got, you know, they, they do a great job of dealing with rats, uh, mice, cats, uh, cockroaches are mentioned quite a bit. I think that's the closest thing we can do. Demon spirits, maybe? Demon spirits, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate pest, really, when you think about it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's start off with one of Troy Hawk's earliest films, and arguably, like, this was his kind of 
big breakthrough or at least the the, the film that kind of um, gained, gained him notoriety because it ended up being heavily, heavily edited. And uh, that's Dangerous Counters of the First Kind. Jack Eason, what the hell is this movie? This is uh, this is dangerous to, to the social fabric. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is we, we've talked. It's kind of come up repeatedly throughout these episodes. We've talked about uh, Choi's anti-authoritarian streak, his tendency for uh, elements of nihilism. This is the film where it all comes to the forefront. This is the most anti-authoritarian, nihilistic film that Cho has ever made and probably will ever make. Um, a film about three middle-class schoolboys who basically start building bombs to deploy around Hong Kong purely for fun. There's no political agenda attached to it. They're, they're just doing it to see what happens. And they meet up with a girl who is even more psychotic than they are and uh, who starts pushing things even further and they get eventually wrapped up in an international arms group uh, of foreigners uh, who are working in Hong Kong, shipping weapons around, and everything gets very violent. And that's mm-hmm. that's pretty much the film. And like you said, uh, it was heavily... It, it, was, it wasn't released originally in its original format. It was banned. The Hong Kong censors were like, no, thank you. You are not showing a film about teenagers just making bombs. That's really bad. <laughs> so they, they, Choi was contractually obliged to release the film. So he did create a theatrical cut, which is usually referred to as Don't Play With Fire, which actually has an enormous amount of new footage. He had to completely change the, the heart of the film. It's a really weird film now. Um, but luckily he backed up on VHS or some kind of tape source, his original edit. So it has survived. Um, unfortunately, the insert parts are all like tape source. So they look like crap. But uh, if you were watching this movie, yeah, yeah, but burnt in. It's strange it must have got to the point where they had already subtitled it. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting how far it got before the censors were like, what the hell do you think you're doing? Um, but luckily we have both versions, which are both quite interesting, as we'll discuss, but uh, the the director's cut is is absolutely the preferred version of this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess it's, you know, <laughs> if anybody else made this movie, it would probably be like a cautionary tale of youth gone wild. But here it's just like, there's there's no like moral to the story. It's just that these kids are psychotic and... It, it, they just they just end up in this like nihilistic hellhole where nothing absolutely nothing good happens to them it's just a death spiral basically and then in the end you're like well maybe this will wrap up and we'll all learn something no there's none of that it's you know, it, the the way it starts it kind of it kind of leads you down thinking well maybe but no not not at all um and then the other thing I was thinking when I was watching this is not not just how deeply nihilistic it is, but thinking about the different versions of the film, I don't understand how you can do another version of this movie to like tame it and not make it about, you know, kids just making bombs. Oh, it's um, fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the theatrical version that was released. So, so as you mentioned, it's about three schoolboys who just kind of make bombs and deploy them. Um, in the theatrical version, the boys basically run over a homeless guy and drive away. They just do a hit and run, which is bad, but a completely different breed of crime. Like, that's a specifically three kids do something bad and run off. That's not even particularly evil on the grand 
grand scale of things. You know, it's it's mm. a you know a faux pas. It's it's wrong. It's illegal, but it's not yeah. like it's we're a real, just putting. Uh, yeah, I know what you did last summer. Situation. So, so literally, you know? that's what happens: is the girl I know what you did last summer is the guys, and basically says I know what you did, and now you have to start doing all this other stuff. There, there is still a bomb goes off in the theatrical cut, but there's no explanation for why it happens, which makes it almost worse than the director's cut. The just one, but they just have. <laughs> is it the t- same bomb in the theater? Yes, it's the bomb in the theater, which is the first one, which they use just to introduce the cop as if cops are always called up in Hong Kong to just exploding theaters. Oh, I wonder if if uh, there was ever a, a Joker scare when this came out that you know going oh. to this to the cinema was going to be scary. It could, it could Ooh. be, but but the big change with the theatrical is first they they changed the the they remove basically all emphasis on bomb making. Um, which is something that harked back to the 1967, I believe, Hong Kong riots. There were big riots in Hong Kong, um, and there were some bombings took place during that time. So it's a politically loaded subject, aside from the fact that just deploying bombs is, like, you know, problematic. Um, but the other thing that the theatrical <laughs> cut does is it introduces police characters. Um, Interpol are hunting the um, arms dealers. So there's this emphasis on the police you know, do it, you know, trying to track them down. So there's, there's much more of a feeling of like there's an accountability. Although ironically, the finale of the film plays out completely unchanged. So the police, and it, in the original film, it's like a, one loose cannon cop shows up to a bloodbath. Uh, that happens in the theatrical version too. But um, just before there's an in- insert shot where this new cop who's not in the, the director's cut in the original cut at all, um, they just have a shot of him dead in his car to show that the arms dealers clearly killed him uh, to get rid of that plot line before it just dumps right back into the the, the same finale. But the general emphasis <laughs> of the theatrical cut is that the police are actually doing stuff in Hong Kong and they're helping, whereas in the director's original cut, the police are pretty much absent. They have no idea what they're doing. They're actually, they, they actually track the boys, the, the, what, what police involvement there is, they're tracking the boys for essentially trying to cash stolen money orders from Japan. Uh, nothing to do with the bomb. They don't know they're involved in the bomb. So there, there's mm-hmm. kind of an incompetence element. So yeah, the theatrical cut is a wildly different film um, and had to be just to, to, to change things up. And Choi did direct it. He had to make the changes because he had to deliver a film that could be released per the Hong Kong censors. So it's, it's an interesting what if Man, that's messed up. I don't agree with the Hong Kong censors at all on this one. You should write them a letter. Should, uh, yeah, write them, write them a spirited letter. Let them know your feelings. The problem is that you, you could have written them a letter in English back then, but now I believe you're going to have to write it in Mandarin. So, good luck. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. It's okay. Start taking some night classes. I think in a year or two you'll be ready. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think one of the other things I like about this too is when we talk about these, you know, these teens who are just building bombs and, you know, causing mayhem just cause, you know, not because they have some grand political scheme or whatever. These are not like, they, they don't look like intimidating guys at all. They're really just like scrawny, you know, big, thick glasses, shirts tucked in like, oh, geez, uh, we're bored. Let's build some bobs. Uh, one of them is clearly very wealthy too. Uh, you know, yeah, I think just... that's a major point that the the guy who actually learns to make the bombs appears to be considerably wealthier than the other two. I mean, they are the type of guys. They look like the type of guys that would be manipulated by a woman very easily. 
Yeah. But even that's interesting because it's not, it's not really a sexual thing for them. No. They're kind of like, like weird, like sexless Reddit incels. Like they just, <laughs> they're just doing shit to fuck shit up. They don't have any, you know, real ethos or, or ideology behind what they're doing. And then on top of that, this woman comes in their lives and not once do they, do they make a pass at her or anything like that. Quite the opposite. They, they do everything they can to get away from her. Now, given she's psychotic, uh, but they don't even entertain the idea. They're not like, oh, wow, geez, huh, huh, I'm thinking about her boobs. Like, they, not, there's nothing like that at all. It's, which is in and of itself, again, kind of gives it a, a different wrinkle and, and makes it a, a different kind of film that I think you would get in, say, you know, a, from a Western filmmaker. Um, but I do really enjoy the Western elements in this movie because. The uh, the bad guys who are these, I think they're like mercenaries, like soldier of fortune guys from Vietnam or something. And they're the most stereotypical, like American GI badass characters. <laughs> you could be like you, you, they're like algorithmic, algorithmically created, just like the perfect stereotype. And it's fucking hilarious. The dream job, I think, honestly, must have been being a white guy in classic Hong Kong cinema. Just like you just show up and you just... You're always the bad guy, pretty much, unless you're a bit character. Like, if you have a speaking role, mm -hmm. you're a bad guy, always. And then you just pretty much, you're, you're not going to get, your own voice is probably not going to make it. So you can probably say whatever you like on set, and you just have to act wild. And mm -hmm. it's an amazing opportunity. And these guys do it. I mean, like you say, there's just these sweaty dudes in army fatigues who just walk around the place talking about how angry they are, and then they just yeah. hurt people. They're mirrored that's, sunglasses. That's Yeah. <laughs> And then the other thing I It'll like too is every single guy, like every time they take out a gun, the gun is slightly bigger than the previous guy's gun. It's just constantly growing. <laughs> the arms Even race. at the end, he like pulls out a pistol. I'm like, how, how is he holding that with one hand? It's, it's fucking like the size of a two by four. I don't even know if I've ever seen like a silenced revolver before. That's what this movie's toting. And there's a lot of them too. Oh, yeah. It's it's truly a, a sight to behold. Yeah, it's a really chaotic film in terms of it, it's got some really potent imagery. It, it's worth mentioning trigger warning for anyone who does want to check this one out. This thing has like unabashed animal cruelty, like in the opening scene, uh, you'll yeah. see some animals being mistreated. Uh, it's very it's it's an abrasive kind of vicious film the girl character we talked about who is like just a straight-up psychopath uh, her brother is a police officer who's introduced and kind of his role in the film really is to just be kind of clueless and out of sorts he's sort of he's not a he's not exactly a bad bungling cop but he never really has a handle on the situation and he really doesn't even know his sister is involved in anything for the longest time now she just seems to be like she's very hard to to work on because like you say it doesn't feel like there's particularly a gender role to her or certainly no kind of a sexual element to it she mm -hmm. it just seems she's just very angry about things and she likes pushing people's buttons and she has no problem hurting and killing things for fun it's she's honestly like one of the most just vicious kind of characters I could think of in film from anywhere ever. Like, she's... You could easily stick her on a top 10 movie psychopaths list. She'd fit right in. She'd over... She'd probably supersede most of your more obvious things. Like, honestly, Hannibal Lecter isn't as scary as this lady to me, so... No. Yeah. I, I would agree with that 
And uh, the yeah, the animal cruelty in this it's like it, it's it's like real shit. Like they're they're actually like killing animals. So uh, you know you you might want to be conscious of that. Uh, maybe don't watch it with grandma. Um, do do we know has friend of the show Allison the vegan film critic has she seen this one? Do we know if she's got a review on Letterboxd? Strangely, her favorite movie is in her top four. Strange. Oh it's, it's wow! This movie's poster four times on her Letterboxd profile. <laughs> <laughs> That makes so much sense. Oh, no, she gave Shit. it two stars. <laughs> Which means it has some merit in her eyes. So I think if you're, if you're new to Choi Hawk, is this a good place to start? Like if you're going to dive into his, his really early work, is this a good place to start? I feel like it's a good jumping off point because from here it's like when you get into his later films, which are, you know, maybe, maybe equally violent, but maybe a, a tad less nihilistic it kind of prepares you for a lot of his filmography. It's it's kind of funny actually because I think this was um because really saw kind of a major turning point for for Joy as a filmmaker right after this film um because prior his three films prior to this Butterfly Murders uh, We're Going to Eat You his cannibal comedy quote unquote uh, and then this film are all pretty they're very violent they're very cynical um they they you know kind of they're not about happy endings or anything and um, but after this he really swivels he kind of moves into a much more mainstream populist thing uh, kind of populist mode um and it's actually interesting um i was listening to tony Raines talking about this film earlier where he's, he was talking about zoo technically which we'll get to in a, in a bit but he was talking about how uh, tony Raines of all people showed up to a leftist film meeting in Hong Kong in the early 80s, as you do, and it was like held by some leftist <laughs> film group. And so it was all a bunch of young, nominally leftist filmmakers, which Choi Hawk was apparently was in with that group around the, the early 80s. Um, so, um, and, and the speaker at this event was none other than uh, Mo Tun Fei, who people may know best as T.F. Mo. Uh, aka the guy who directed notoriously gruesome film Men Behind the Sun and several other mm. really grotesque, uh, abrasive, awful films, frankly. Um, but he, he was an, also a leftist activist. And Tony Raines, as he recounts it, he says that, that uh, Moton Fei gave this speech about how leftist filmmakers in this time of uncertainty, popularity with mainland China, with the Communist Party rule, was waning among leftists in Hong Kong. They were seeing more issues and kind of shortfalls and what they felt policy should be there. Uh, so Moton Fei said that at this point, leftist filmmakers should probably work less to make revolutionary films and concentrate more on making popular, uh, you know, crowd-pleasing films. And Rain says that mo most of the audience balked at this. They were like, what, what are you talking about? But the one guy who didn't was Choi Hawk, who seemed very pleased at the concept. And it seems like, I don't, I don't know if that was actually the turning point for him, but this film does, a, he, he did do a populist turn after this. I believe he went to, um, I can't remember the name of the, the company that he went to after this. Uh, it was Cinema City, I think. Um, and like mm -hmm. he, he made like just a, a raucous comedy next. I, I think all the wrong clues for the right solution came next, which is like literally naked gun silly. So um, <laughs> as a jumping off point, uh, this is this is really kind of like the the precipice of his most nihilistic period. And after this, although the anti-authoritarian elements would continue throughout his work, uh, there was a much more commercial bent to his filmmaking after this, which he has pursued to the present day. I mean, as a guy who's now 
every film he makes nowadays seems to be in 3D. You know, it's like, and he's working in mainland China. You know, he's I, making. I don't even real think that's big... mainstream anymore, though. Like, if you're doing films in 3D now, that's. Uh... Well, I know, apparently in mainland China, they're just eating it up. You know, it's I mean, because cool uh, honestly, if you have a hitbox office hit in mainland China, you don't need anyone else to look at your movie. You have made so yeah, much money true. there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because. You know, I, I was reading a little back background on him, and uh, I, I guess in the 80s, his nickname was like the Hong Kong Spielberg. And I read that after I had watched Dangerous Encounters and nothing else. <laughs> and I was just like, what the fuck? But even now that I've watched more of his filmography, I think it's hilarious because if you look at how <laughs> Choi Hog started and then you compare that to Spielberg, it's like, I mean, compare Dangerous Encounters to... I don't know, Duel or like Sugarland Express or something like that. And it's just, it's, it's not even, or even Jaws, it's not even in like the same galaxy as what he's doing. If Spielberg had made a movie like Dangerous Encounters the First Kind, I feel like if he'd muscled in on Poltergeist like people say he did, it actually would look like a Toby Hooper movie. He'd probably call it something <laughs> stupid like Close Encounters or something, like a, uh, I don't know, That's, third kind or yeah. something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 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 something terrible like that. Real dumb shit. <laughs> Anyways, so moving on from Dangerous Encounters, um, uh, let's get into a, uh, you know, a Chinese soldier in uh, ancient China uh, doing, you know, laser beams out of his fingers and jumping around. What the fuck is Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, Jake? Oh my God, it is a, it is a total blast, Steve. Um, Zoo Warriors... Follows a, a scout who is leading his men. He's he's in basically he's in the blue army, and uh, they can't decide where to go because there's two commanding officers who are giving contradicting orders. So he flees onto a boat and he finds a red scout who may have flown from his uh, army for similar reasons. They head out into battle and then it becomes a five army rainbow fight in the woods. Uh, then they find this cave <laughs> and uh, fight off demonic spirits, and they're joined by a pair of monks who are dressed in black and white garb, as well as a, uh, a great warrior who is dressed in all white. They must do battle with the blood demon and set up to find the dual swords of purple and green and also visit a temple of women, and it is just... Oh my god, <laughs> high-flying action excitement, and uh, I, I just love it so much. I don't even know how accurate I am with that synopsis, but... Uh, I mean, it captures a chunk of it, sir. <laughs> you just, you just yeah. have to, more than any of his films, I think, you just really have to submit yourself to Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain. It's in, an incredible accomplishment. You know, Jake, in our, in our group chat, you were, you were giving it all this like breathless praise, and I was like, fuck yeah, I can't wait to watch this. And then I turned it on and I'm like, man, this sucks shit. I don't know. Like normally Jake and I, we, we usually see eye to eye on, on most movies. I think sometimes maybe he's a little kinder than I am, but this is the worst thing I've ever fucking seen. This looks like, like it has like Mortal Kombat Annihilation CGI. What's going on? And then I realized that I was watching the, uh, the zoo movie from the two thousands and not from the 1980s, which, uh, yeah, it turns out that one maybe not the same level of quality. It seems talking populist filmmaking. Yeah, uh, Choi Hawk has has said that uh, 
he has a kind of a problem where whenever he finishes a movie, he just immediately wants to make it again. So he did do that with Zoo in 2001, and you're right, it is, it's a CGI uh, frenzy, and I'm... Uh, we won't go too much into that one. And um, the, the difference is, it's it's interesting, I guess, to compare the two because if if you want to explain Zoo, I guess at its basic or its most basic, it is essentially Choi Hawk trying to make a Chinese equivalent to Star Wars. That was kind of the brief, and his idea was to bring the classic wuxia film um, into not into the modern era of like it's it's set in a fantastical, mystical midst of time time period, but to bring the filmmaking of the wuxia into the modern era then. So he actually, it's an extremely special effects heavy film, and he actually brought in uh, special effects technicians from Hollywood to help do it. This was a really kind of an unprecedented move in Hong Kong at the time. And it's kind of amazing to think that just three years prior, he made a movie about schoolboys bombing Hong Kong that got banned. And the next thing we know, he's at Golden Harvest to produce this as one of those Really, they they were one of the few studios at the time who could produce a film this big, and it is it's just a special effects extravaganza. As Jake points out, I mean, it's uh, plot wise, it's really it doesn't really hang together particularly well. I think it, there's a little bit of an element, and um, it opens with uh, a civil war at the at the the, the foothills of of Zhu, which is a which is a historical magical mountain. I think it's a real mountain in China. I think. Um, but there's there's all kinds of folklore surrounding it. But I, there is a little bit of that that choy um, what would you say like um, political element to it that it would appear that the only civil war that's happening, the only difference anyone has is the color of their outfits, and they all just show up places and then just fight each other until everyone's dead. It's like a completely frivolous <laughs> civil war. But he, uh, our main character, played by Yun Biao, whoever anyone who's watched you know Jackie Chan, classic Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung film, he was one of the Seven Little Fortunes with them. Uh, never as big a star as them, but a great leading guy. I'm always he's always uh, fun to watch. And um, he basically finds out that there's a that there's something actually important afoot, which is that this blood demon is coming coming awake and he's going to destroy reality or something. We're not quite sure what he's doing, but he's bad because if you're the blood demon, you're almost certainly not good. So he has to team up with various mystical warriors to defeat the blood demon by uh, flying everywhere, and it's it is absolutely wild. But um, I love this film. In, on a, on a certain day, I think this might be my favorite of Choi Hawk's films oh, because wow. it just absolutely just enlivens uh, like my childish glee. Like th- this to me, this is what film can be. It's it's like it reminds me a lot of like George Melies. It's the you know, cuts in camera, special effects, practical, like physical movement and creation on screen. It's just a really just vibrantly alive film, inventive, uh, creative, unique. Uh, you've never seen a film like this before. I can I can assure you there aren't, even in Wuxia, like if you've watched a lot of them, uh, they don't look like this one generally. Just, uh, you know, it's just an amazing film and every single scene is just something happening that you've never seen happen before it's it's yeah. wild i'm i'm gonna have to agree with you there i think uh, I, I think this is my favorite a uh, choi hawk film um i had seen it once before and i thought it was great but like seeing it again where i could re- where i knew what was coming and i could just kind of let it happen uh, was it was just a total blast uh i mean the the blood demon is like one of the, the coolest effects ever because it's like a floating invisible man where a, a like a red cape kind of drenches over a face 
and then we get this guy who emerges from the mountain. He's called Master Longbrows, and he's holding the demon in a rock with his long eyebrows. Uh, yes, it's one, one of two roles for Sammo Hong in the film. Sammo Hong yeah. gets, gets two roles, because <laughs> why not? Yeah, he's the he's also the Red Scout, and like he has a great little scene where they're like having the the Civil War rainbow fight, where he's like he keeps getting ganged up on by multiple soldiers from various armies. So he's like, he, I was like, oh wait, hey, let's go fight them. There's more of them, and then he's he's like turning everyone on, and then they all realize, hey, wait, there's only one of him and all of us. Let's get him. Um, but yeah, this I mean, this is just like uh, and just like the effects alone, like the wire foo in this is astounding. Like, I'm surprised nobody was beheaded that because they're all just flying around so much. It's great. Yeah, this this movie, in a lot of ways, people would, would posit this as, like, the first real Choi Hawk film, um, which I don't think is necessarily true because I think stuff like... I think Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind is an absolutely remarkable film. I think it's, you know, you can't discount it. It's it's an incredible film, but it isn't. it is admittedly not entirely of the mode you would associate with Choi. This is, it's got the rapid fire editing, it's got the incredibly kinetic action sequences, uh, preponderance and special effects and visual kind of trickery. Um, so yeah, this does feel very much like the Choi Hawk, you know, that we would we come to associate with. So in a way, I think maybe this would be a really great starting point, because honestly, if you if this is too much for you, then a lot of his movies will probably be too much for you. Or the action stuff, at least, you know. If you don't like this, I don't know how you're going to fare with The Blade or even with Green Snake or something. Because they've all got that kind of, like, hyper-stylized action aesthetic to them. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a really tremendous kind of piece of work, I think. Yeah, build, definitely build up to this one. Um, and, just, and just brace yourself, because it, it'll come fast and furious, but... It's a hell of a hell of a ride. Yeah, make sure you you watch the right one. That's kind of important. <laughs> that, that well, I watched the shiny Eureka Blu-ray that came out last year. It's it's well worth picking up if you haven't already. Fun, funnily enough, this movie does also have two versions, at least two versions, and um, because Choi oh. also didn't finish this film, um, he this, this was going to be a Chinese New Year release, which is like one of the biggest. It's it's the biggest holiday in. Chinese calendar and it's a big cinema day everyone goes to the movies throughout that that holiday so it's like a massive box office thing and the production of this film was running behind because it's incredibly special effects heavy so of course it was so at a certain point Golden Harvest intervened because they were worried it wasn't going to make the the New Year's deadline so they took the film from Choi they kind of did there's a few scenes here that don't quite make any sense or kind of like uh, for example there's a dude who's um, chained to a rock at one point, who just shows up and no one mentions him, and then I believe he dies off screen. I believe someone just says, "Oh no, he's died," uh, and that's um, <laughs> that's because they obviously didn't get a chance to film that. There's a few little like bumps on the road, which honestly makes me kind of like the film even more because again, it comes back down to that like nuts and bolts quality, how you can just kind of paste things together. You know, it, it, I don't know. There's just kind of a fun element to it. But Choi didn't finish the film. Um, it was kind of like pasted together by Golden Harvest to make the deadline. And then Golden Harvest did an export version, which is, again, a very significantly different film. There's, it runs for nearly a half hour before you see a single frame of footage from the actual original film that you would know. It creates a, a new bracketing sis, uh, kind of storyline where Yun Bao and Moon Lee, who plays, who's the female lead in this film, return. And he's basically Yun Biao is in college in a generic college somewhere and he's being bullied by some white dudes white dudes are the worst 
and uh, he has a couple of fights and stuff. Like literally, they shot so much new footage. Like there's there's fight scenes in this in this modern day sequence that aren't in the original film. Um, and eventually, it's a time travel film. Um, and it, it, I don't think Choi shot any of those things. But again, there are two versions of this film that are quite different. Uh, certainly, the export version is not the preferred version. Although it is interesting that the export version is actually these these modern day scenes they use were actually part of the original script because Choi's original script did involve the battle continuing into the present day through like reincarnation and so on. <laughs> so he, that never happened because he was running real fucking behind on everything. But they actually did reuse part of his script ideas to create this kind of like this this modern day setting, which basically reduces the rest of the film, the actual film to like, it was all a dream, uh, which is really goofy. But um, yeah, kind of a strange one. And uh, Jake mentioned the the UK Blu-ray does include the export cut, so you can you can check it out and see see wow. what's what. And it's got really goofy dubbing, which is always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this just it makes me think about how you know the fact that he had to have this film like wrestled away from him, and uh, you know the studio had to finish it um, later on once he really established himself. You know, as the Hong Kong Spielberg. And he got into producing. Uh, I read an interview with him where he was talking about, he said, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm a much better director than I am a producer because when I'm a producer, I end up directing anyways. Uh, so apparently like <laughs> on, on the original, like John Woo, Better Tomorrow, he took the film and then John Woo got super fucking pissed at him because he just edited the shit out of it. Um, that's a better tomorrow also, too. Oh, better tomorrow too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they parted ways after that. John Woo was so fucking mad at him. <laughs> yeah, so he was talking about that, and then he also mentioned the interview that like at one point he was he was working with King Hu on on a a project, and that's yeah, like that's like serious. Yeah, serious Hong Kong cinema royalty, and he fired him. Like, that's amazing that he would just i i just i cannot the, the gall he's just like yeah you're gone i'll take care of this i mean to, to link to link to our previous series uh in 1988 there's a film the big heat which is nominally directed by johnny toe and was produced mm. by Choi hawk if you watch the big heat and it's a lot of fun it's a Choi hawk film like it's insane <laughs> it is not a johnny toe film at all nothing about it particularly or very little reads i was gonna say to anything he does it's funny that we didn't choose that or um, what's the other one that they're both credited on uh, to like bridge the gap between our two things. Well, um, you, you picked the movies, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's entirely your fault. <laughs> oh, Triangle uh, with Ringo Lamb as well. Um, yeah. But uh, you know what? No regrets. If I was in charge of picking the movies, we'd just watch Double Team 16 times. And that's all you need to do. Four <laughs> episodes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's just so fun. Like, just to hear him talk, like, casually about that. He's just like, yeah, you know, anytime I'd have a film, I'd just, you know, I'd produce it. And I'd end up just editing it and practically directing it myself. So I decided to stop producing. Like, yeah, I don't think you're really producing at that point. <laughs> we honestly could have done a whole other series on, because, I mean, yeah, um, Chinese Ghost Story, The Raid. He works a lot with uh, Ching Sitong, who's a pretty acclaimed uh, director in his mm -hmm. own right. Um, but he's he's muscled in on some of those. Like I said, The Big Heat. Um, 
there was a few other ones, but but yeah, I mean, there's OM, The Wicked City, which is an inc- insane movie, which te- technically is directed by, I think, Peter Mack. Uh, Takit, I think, is the director of that, but uh, it's a Choi Hawk film. Again, he completely <laughs> took over. That's a movie where a person, where a man has sex with an anthropomorphic pinball machine. So um, We've been there. If, We've all been there. Yeah, so so if you if that sounds like something you want to check out, do check that out. But yeah, no, uh, Choi's production record is insane because, like you say, he he's he's uh, he set up Film Workshop in the sometime in the eighties, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, he must have because Shanghai Blues, who I think was one of his first Film Workshop films, and that was basically to bring up young directors. But uh, they'd come in and then he would just kind of direct the movies too. I think it's funny because he did a Johnny Toe and then Johnny Toe set up Milky Way, which was the same idea. But Johnny Toe was also taking movies off people. There's also movies that like <laughs> are directed by other people, but actually Johnny Toe did all the directing. He's just like, he came to the set one day and never left. So it must be a thing <laughs> that just runs in the blood over there. That's amazing. Uh, well, you, you mentioned Shanghai Blues and wouldn't you know... That's the next movie that we're talking about. Uh, this, again, talk about Whiplash, man, because I I watched uh, Dangerous Encounters and then I watched Shanghai Blues. And to think that these two movies were made just a few years apart by the same person is <laughs> kind of mind-blowing because I think they're both like brilliant, like borderline masterpiece-level stuff. And they they could not be any more different from each other in a lot of ways. So uh, we talked about, you know, uh, Chinese Star Wars. And we talked about a movie about a bunch of kids just building bombs for funsies. So how about a nice little uh, post-war romantic comedy with some musical elements? How's that sound, guys? Sounds delightful. It is it, delightful. It is. It's so <laughs> delightful. So this is, um, I, I guess, Choi Hawk wanted to make this movie because he uh, he wanted to take place in 1940s Shanghai because he saw a lot of parallels between, um, you know, 1940s Shanghai and 1980s Hong Kong. So he's like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this film, and it's this weird period of history uh, in China where it's like. World War II is over and the communist revolution hasn't started and and the civil war is kind of around the corner, but it hasn't started yet. And so there's this really brief period of kind of reconstruction and and peace. And he decides to uh, plop a a romantic comedy right in the middle of it. And uh, thank God this doesn't have the same nihilistic tendencies as Dangerous Encounters. I was getting really worried. Like, by the time I got to the end, I was just like, no, no, I saw what he did to me the last movie I watched. He's going to fuck me here. I'm getting all emotionally invested. Thank God that doesn't happen. But uh, I I don't know. Uh, Jack, tell me more about Shanghai Blues. Or Sean, why not? Uh, Well, I was going to say, if you are on the last episode, was it the last episode? If you're on the first episode... Uh, which you weren't, which is probably good for our metrics. Um, we, uh, we watched, uh, Peking Opera Blues, which, um, was made two years later. And, uh, uh, but you'd kind of get an idea of what's coming here or what came before it. Um, even though it takes place in a different time and a, a different place. Uh, this is in Shanghai in like 1937 and instead of Beijing, like, 20 years earlier. Um, but, uh, 
it has uh, a similar spirit um, to that film and also follows um, three people that are, I don't know, uh, sometimes working together, sometimes working against each other, uh, more so here. But um, it's funny, I uh, Sean Gilman, who is our host or our guest on the on the the first episode um he had a write-up sent like that was bringing up the moment in peaking opera blues that like really funny gag where the dad comes in to his daughter's room and there's like extra guests in the bed and they are have to have to hide from him and all they're just in a room they're just in a bedroom and these two extra bodies who are in the bed have to hide from this guy. And so they're just like, you know, going under the sheet, uh, going into the corner, like just hiding everywhere in plain sight. Um, and Sean was saying uh, that Shanghai Blues is basically a feature length version of that scene, um, which <laughs> I, like I was surprised at how true that is. And I mean, it's awesome. It's It's like... Uh, just so fun to watch, like, uh, so many different scenarios, uh, of that happening here where just multiple people with multiple, like with different motivations, uh, and just totally different livelihoods are in the same space and navigating space and negotiating each other's motivations and yada, yada, um, all done in this very playful, uh, sense, um, and then obviously it's all wrapped up in this like romantic comedy too. Um, but there are like downright bits of slapstick. Like there's, there's a bit with a, a tuba towards the beginning that is like just so funny. I mean, it, it's just like classic, like, you know, 30, like twenties and thirties level, like, you know, screwball, like, uh, like physical comedy gag. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's just a very like joyful movie, even though, you know, it is, um, has this backdrop that is uh, pretty depressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's as well, like if we were to go roughly over the plot, it's essentially about uh, two a man and a woman uh, who played by Kenny B and Sylvia Chang. Who and Sylvia Chang particularly, I think it's uh, they were Kenny B was a huge star at this point. I believe was like really big box office draw. Sylvia Chang was as well, but Sylvia Chang's actually gone on to become, she was a great writer, director in her own right. She's kind of become one of the leading women of kind of a wave of, of uh, Chinese cinema now. Um, but they meet under a, basically they, they, they kind of meet inadvertently and hide under a bridge during a bomb, a bombing during the war. Uh, and they promise they'll meet again there uh, in a year's time or whatever. It's like, is it 10 years time? Is it that long? I don't, I don't recall. But anyway, a certain amount of time later, once the war is gone, because the guy's going to go join the army and she's going to go and be somewhere safer. So they get separate, <laughs> they get separated and they both come back later on and they can't seem to meet each other. Um, but they, they, they've both fallen in love basically with each other, the idea of each other. So they're just trying to reunite um, and in the meantime, another girl played by Sally Ye, who I think gives one of one of the most amazing comic performances in this film. She's also amazing in Peking Opera Blues, where she plays the Peking Opera, uh, uh, the owner's daughter. And she's just an incredible performer. At these, and those two films, I think, must be among the best work she's ever done. Um, she shows up in Shanghai and she's basically just looking to make it. She meets up with Sylvia Chang's character. 
they end up living together just through convenience. And it turns out that the, the guy that Sylvia Chang's character is looking for, uh, the guy she met under the bridge, is living upstairs and they don't know it for the longest time. And like Sean mentions, the film is really just about missed opportunities and misconnections and just an incredible inventiveness of uh, kind of using the space of the scenes like the, the the set design here is absolutely intrinsic to how they segment you know moving people around into different areas and having these kind of missed connections it it very much kind of you know highlights i think Choi's visual creativity um to kind of design all of this um and it, it, it's i mean it's kind of like you know the the missed connection comedy sometimes it can it can grate on you. It's kind of like, oh, for God's sake, come on. But everything here is so clever and smooth in the way that it transpires with so much slapstick and physical elements to it. It really just, it plays beautifully. And of course, the characters are all very likable and there's subsequent uh, kind of confusions and stuff. One of them just wins a beauty contest by accident. Uh, you know, there's just all kinds of stuff happening. Just uh, an incredibly lovely film and one of the sad things about this movie and this case with a lot of choice films is that there's not really a good edition of this film you can find it online i think ripped from probably an old dvd and but like looking at this movie it just it looks so beautiful and there are certain scenes particularly under the bridge and later on when they reunite and they're walking over the bridge in the rain with their umbrellas and it almost a scene in there that's uh, he uses animation for the long shot i'm almost certain it's an animated shot it's not actually live action and it's, but it's difficult to tell because print isn't that good. But it's this incredibly beautiful <laughs> looking piece of filmmaking, um, and it's just a, it's just frustrating that this, like this, absolutely should be reclaimed and restored and brought out in shiny bells and whistles editions. But that's not what happens for a lot of Hong Kong cinema. So that's a, and that's a damn shame. Yeah. Someone should rescue some of these. <laughs> yeah, you know that's. I think, I think you got that, man, you should register that, that web domain if you haven't already. Um, yeah, it take forever to do anything. <clears throat> <laughs> That's not true. He sends like three emails a day. Yeah, about all the work he hasn't done yet. <laughs> we love your work when we love your work when we see it. You know who you are. Yeah, we love you. We're sorry. Uh yeah. Anyways, this is this is like a stone cold masterpiece. It's it's a brilliant film, and it's the kind of movie too where you can show this to anyone. Okay, like I, I'm not I'm not going to encourage you to show Dangerous Encounters to, I mean, literally most of your loved ones or friends. But this is the kind of movie where anyone can sit down in front of this, watch it, and be like, "This is goddamn amazing." It Aside from the blackface, well, yeah, the blackface. Uh, it draws <laughs> elements from. Like post-war American musicals, you certainly get that. But the thing that I love about it is I, I did not think that the slapstick would be that brilliant, but it, it really is because he shoots it like fight choreography. And that's what really makes it sing. And it's the chemistry between these characters. It's, it, it's just electric. And the movie's fucking beautiful. And it's just, it's just really a joy to watch. It's one of those movies where you just kind of sit back you get a smile on your face. You just kind of let it wash over you. It's it's really wonderful. So uh, there's not a great version of this out there, but track it down. It's worth it. Uh, maybe look at you know Jack Eason's Twitter handle. Maybe he posted a link to it. Who knows? It's it's possible. Can't be ruled. It's out. entirely possible. We can't we can't rule it out yet. 
Uh, and if not, uh, you know, just, just dig around on the internet. You'll find it. You'll find it. But God, if, if you're going to watch one movie from this week, this is, this is probably it. Like seek this one out. It's worth it. Uh, well, I guess, you know, we were doing all these, uh, early to mid eighties Joy Hawk movies. So, uh, why don't we just end the episode on a, on a random film from 2000? How's that sound? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so th- this is kind of interesting because, well, Choi Hawk in, in the mid to late nineties, he did a couple of American films. And then at some point he was like, yeah, maybe I should slow down a little bit. So he did, which I- I'm guessing was difficult for him given his output previously. Uh, and after slowing down for a little bit, he decided to jump back in and start uh, making movies at a feverish pace. And, I wouldn't call this like a comeback film necessarily, but it was one of his his big movies after this uh, little break that he took. And in classic Choi Hawk fashion, it doesn't make a lick of goddamn sense, but that doesn't matter. And if you if you take one thing away from you know all all the movies that we've watched, all four of the episodes that we're doing. We're going to encounter, we've certainly encountered this before, we're going to encounter it again. Uh, if you try to explain the plot, or if you try to be how does, you know, A connect to B, don't, don't even bother. Doesn't matter. But the one thing that's consistent is, even if you don't know what the fuck is going on, you are never, ever bored. Not for a second. And that is the essence of Time and Tide, because I, I, I really, I couldn't tell you what the last 45 minutes were about, but... It's some of the coolest shit I've ever seen. So, Jake, maybe you can help me out here. I was going to say, Steve, <laughs> yeah. I think the last 45 minutes is just the finale. Yeah, it's just <laughs> shooting, mostly. I was just trying to figure out, like, why they were shooting, really. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a lot matter. of pregnant women, uh, water breaking, just guns everywhere. It's it's a lot to take in. It's funny, like, before, before uh, Jake, you can explain it better, but it's funny, like, uh, watching... Troy, Troy Hawk movies just generally for this project. It's one of those things where if you live with anybody, you kind of like, and you're watching these, like you kind of pray that if they sit down and watch, they don't ask you what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't just, I don't want to have to try and explain this or on the reverse, just like sound like a complete idiot being like, I don't really know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had the exact same experience. <laughs> it's just about this guy. He's kind of like an aimless uh, punk. Not doesn't really have much going on. Accidentally uh, has has a one night stand with a female cop. Gets her pregnant accidentally. So then he decides to take a job as a bodyguard for uh, Johnny Toe regular Anthony Wong, uh, so that he can pay you know give her money to, to help take care of the kid and. Uh, as he rise up, rises up in these ranks, he meets another kind of mercenary-like guy who's also in a similar situation as him, and they kind of bond over their life experiences. But then they sort of realize, oh, our ultimate goal is that we're against each other, and he has to defend his boss from his new friend. That's kind of really it. And then, yeah, it's all—all all of that is just—it's just shot in like in a way where every single shot has to be the coolest-looking thing ever, and the movie is so well off for it it's an again it's just an incredible accomplishment how uh, like everything just just kind of flows and crashes beautifully 
I, I, th- this movie's amazing. There's a real whiplash to this one because when this starts off, um, like Jake mentions, the story seems to be about kind of a shiftless young guy who's just sort of just pissing around, uh, not doing much, gets a girl pregnant. Um, weirdly enough, my, my first inferences for this film when I was watching it, my first reference was actually uh, 101 Reykjavik, which is really weird, but it has a similar story of a shiftless young guy who gets a girl pregnant and he's not prepared for life. And a kind of a heavy emphasis on kind of the locale uh, in one of the films, obviously Reykjavik. In this one, uh, Hong Kong, uh, although a good chunk of this was actually shot in mainland China. But um, it, it has that kind of element to it. And I was like, okay, so it's it's about a guy getting his life together. And then, no, next thing we know, there's South American hitmen show up, which reminded me, weirdly enough, of another movie, City of Lost Souls by Takashi Miike, which is also about kind of a South American diaspora to uh, Asia and hyperkinetic violence. And then I realized, weirdly enough, all three of these movies came out in 2000 in the exact same year. So it must have just been something in the water. Uh, I you know I don't I don't know what was going on there, but then this movie just keeps ratcheting up the hyperkinetic action. So so like I say, originally I thought like because I didn't know anything about this movie when I sat down to watch it, it seemed like it was kind of about a guy getting his life together, and it is. But it's also the last forty five minutes of this is just gunfights. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, an interesting kind of a setup of a film, and in terms of explaining what it's about which I'm not going to be able to do either. I did think it was interesting that the the English title is Time and Tide, but apparently the more direct translation of the Chinese title is apparently a song lyric reference, but it's a downstream or against stream. So it's it's essentially a movie about either moving with the greater flow of things or against the greater flow of things. And I think that's kind of the the payoff of this film is that we have two guys who are nominally end up on the same side as each other. They both want to escape. They've both got pregnant women in their lives who must hate them because they just keep on getting put in danger. But they're they're trying to escape and maneuver out of their lives uh, into something better uh, for our the, the young character Nicholas Tay. It's really just to, to get some kind of a semblance of a life together at all because he's like 20 years old and hasn't done anything for the other guy played by Wu Bai who weirdly enough is is better known actually as a singer he's he is apparently the Bruce Springsteen of China and he doesn't do a lot of acting but he he really liked this movie apparently and he took this movie on as a project uh he is a hitman and a, like a mercenary and he has to extricate himself from that life and that's really the tension of it is that these South American hitmen come after him uh, to try and kill him because he refuses to do a job for them because they have to kill his father-in-law and he reckons that could cause some tension with his wife so he refuses to do it and that's basically what kicks off the <laughs> second half of the movie but if I were to try and figure out where they come together I wouldn't know and uh, talking about film references in this um, later on in the movie there's a, an inordinate number of what felt to me like obvious John Woo references and not least of all uh, a woman giving birth and a baby in the middle of a gunfight which is very reminiscent of hard boils uh, like shootout in the pediatric wing um but also uh wubai does like a hit at some point in the movie and at some point he puts on a really shitty fake mustache which looks exactly like chow yun fat's really shitty fake mustache in the killer and i'm pretty sure that was on purpose and um, there's just an enormous amount of stuff going on in this movie um, and really, I guess the overall 
kind of lesson of it all is just it's utterly vibrant and just inventive like every single scene the camera just like fucking just wheels through it in just insane style nothing in this movie happens the way you would think it is nothing is just like two people doing a thing in front of a camera everything is crazy but in a way that it's not grating at all it's it's just it's it really is just an incredibly vibrant, strange action movie. And when the action happens, it is like the biggest, craziest action you've ever seen. Um, and like really, the the movie ends with like not one, but two huge set pieces. One in a, a massive apartment complex, a huge shootout in one of those. And then they just go out to an airport to have another even bigger shootout, which then meshes into a concert, a live music concert. And they have a fight in the rafters. Um, just an enormous amount of stuff happening. So yeah, I mean, it, it seems like if if you if any of that sounds appealing, just go and check the movie out. Basically, no, I think that's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's um another one of those movies where yeah, you just you just got to strap in and go along for the ride. Uh, don't let other people ask you what's going on. Don't try and think about what's going on. Just just accept what's going on, and you're in for a good time. And that that's pretty much it. In terms of movie references, and I didn't even realize this until I was like reading through about it again, I certainly realized that uh, Nicholas J and uh, Wu Bai's characters are named Jack and Tyler. And this came out a year after Fight Club. What does, what does <laughs> that mean? I have no clue. But, but it is, <laughs> that's what it is, so. Uh, I, I also learned from, from this slate of movies that uh, Choi Hawk really enjoys doing little cartoon inserts. In his movies, so for some reason, Jack, you pointed this out, um, but like, there's a kid watching a Bill Plimpton cartoon <laughs> just, in this movie. Yeah, there's there's some weird stuff with this. Yeah, Joy Hawk talks about this in audio commentary, and he's just kind of like, you know, oh, the kid is just watching a violent cartoon in the afternoon, you know, the way kids do. I thought it's a Bill Plimpton cartoon. Like, kids don't watch, watch Bill Plimpton cartoons. That's weird. There's other things like I'm almost certain the South American. Uh, mercenaries I'm almost certain they're meant to be Brazilian although I don't remember if they ever specified but they're all speaking Spanish not Portuguese <laughs> not Portuguese is, no is that a mistake or a decision I have no idea um, no. although admittedly several of the actors are Filipino but they're definitely not from the Philippines that's not that's not in the movie that's just where they found actors who weren't Chinese <laughs> I guess there's just an enormous amount going on with this. And, you know, it's one of those movies that I guess if you wanted to, if you couldn't get in the spirit of it, you could probably, like, point out stuff. Like, there's a great scene really early in the movie where uh, after uh, Nicholas Che has slept with the police woman and she wake, they wake up the next morning and she thinks maybe he raped her because they both got blackout drunk. She has no idea what happened. And she pulls a gun on him and she ends up shooting through the window she like just shoots a bullet through the window but if you watch the film real quick um you you will notice that there's no gunfire there's no gunshot it's just like literally it cuts to a hole in the window and that was actually because the armor didn't show up on set that day so they couldn't get a gunshot <laughs> so they just punched a hole in the window and just made a sound effect later on and and that's it's just a crazy film but it all hangs together like it doesn't feel like a mistake it feels almost mistake-proof to some degree because the whole thing is just kind of like built up with such an energy that as long as the energy is maintained, everything kind of coalesces pretty well together. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Exactly. Well, and you know, of course there's a child watching Bill Plimpton in this and then dangerous encounters, the first kind, uh, there's an adult woman who's, you know, a complete psychopath bomb builder who's watching Looney Tunes, which I also enjoyed that quite a bit. <laughs> that kind of makes sense, right. to be honest, if we're, yeah. if we're being real. Yeah, no, that that actually that that made me crack up a little bit. And then I also liked it, going back to Dangerous Encounters when, when they bomb the movie theater. They're literally like they're watching a, you know, like a, a war film and there's like a tank driving across some landmines or something. And then their <laughs> bomb in the movie theater goes off. Joy Hawk invented 4D. Yeah, man. It's like when you go to Disney World and you go to the uh the the honey I shrunk the kids thing and they the, the dog sneezes and they spray water at you. It's like that, but it's shrapnel in your face. So yeah, similar stuff. Uh anything else we want to say about this one, guys? Are we gonna wrap things up? This is just a, a great slate of films. I, I highly recommend all of them. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. This is actually just a really strong roster and a pretty decent cross-section that probably thanks to shanghai blues it's very it's very action-centric but Choi's filmography generally is more action-centric than anything else but shanghai blues is one of his best romances it we were talking about like best intro and maybe maybe peaking opera blues which we discussed in the first episode is maybe still the ultimate Choi hawk intro piece because it manages to combine the action and the romance and the comedy somehow all mm-hmm. together far more seamlessly than anyone has any right to integrate the things the way he does. Um, so maybe maybe that's still the, the ultimate Choi Hawk uh, Cliff Notes movie. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Jack, why don't we do some putovers? What are you putting over this week? I don't remember if I've put this over before, but I'm going to put over uh, the movie Prey by, I think, Norman J. Warren is the director, I think. Uh, oh yes uh, he is yes he is prey is one of those movies that uh i put it on expecting to be kind of a schlocky horror movie about an alien who invades earth and kills a bunch of people and it is that but it's also a mo- it's also kind of a movie about a lesbian relationship breaking down while an alien who kills people stands around looking perplexed by that happening it's a really <laughs> weird movie. It's great. I really enjoyed it. It is literally about an alien who comes down. Uh, he eats human flesh, but not all the time. And he gets kind of brought in uh, by this lesbian couple who live in a cottage on their own. And they, their relationship is kind of frayed and is it's in some trouble. And they just kind of bring him in. And they think he's a bit odd, but they just think he's from London, which I think is beautiful. <laughs> and uh, that's that's the movie. It's it's just really really weird. It's nominally a horror, but yeah. I hope it's better than uh, The Prey by Edwin Brown from uh, the '80s, which is not good at all. I don't know if I've seen that one. So no, let's go with this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go with this one. <laughs> no, you can watch any Norman J. Warren, and you're gonna be in good shape, man. Well, I, I do want to get that, into but... uh, that the box uh, that. Came out recently. Oh, this from stuff. Indicator. Yeah, yeah. It's it's great. It's got. I mean, it's got Prey. It's got uh, Satan's Slaves. Got Seminoid. A couple other ones in there too. But uh, it's it's yeah, good you, shit. You know, you're in a good space when you've got a guy who made a movie called Inseminoid. That's yeah, gotta end well. Which, oh man, uh, you know, if you if you if you need some interior decorating tips, uh, <laughs> let me give you a really good one. Uh, Google the poster for Inseminoid, like the theatrical poster. Just order that. Biggest size you can get. Hang it in the center of your living room. Okay? 
That's it. That's all you need. Nothing else. Just put a fucking futon underneath that. Set up your TV. You're good to go. Women will love it. They absolutely love it when you hang up the inseminoid poster. Uh, Sean, what are you putting over this week? Um, I'm putting over uh, a movie that I rewatched uh, recently for the third time, actually, um, called AI Artificial Intelligence. Um from 2001 by a little guy named Steven Spielberg, who was kind of... Oh, the Choi Hawk of America? (laughs) Damn it, Steve. (laughs) I took your joke. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't think you were going Uh, there. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm always going there. Um, But yeah, I I recently rewatched it. And I had had rewatched it uh, last year as well. Um, And it is uh, just an incredibly beautiful movie. uh, One that I saw in the theaters um in high school and you know just completely uh went past me and um i mean i i was interested in it but it's it's quite a quite a large text with a lot of a lot going on in it and um uh my friends in high school absolutely hated it and just wouldn't shut up about it and thought that anyone interested in it must be pretentious but um it, it it's such a, a sad movie, a very morose thing, but um, also it's great to see like uh, a filmmaker talk about populist as as pop, populist as, as Spielberg just kind of go in all of these emotional tangents um, in this movie and just nail all of it. Um, to my opinion, but um, and also. Haley Joel Osment's performance is like just I, I I don't know how you do that performance that well at that age. Like it, it really is something that I think should be talked about more. Um but uh yeah, AI. All right. Jake, what are you putting over this week? Um, so one of the most acclaimed films from twenty twenty was a little ditty called uh, Promising Young Woman. Um, I'm not going to put over that, but if you want to put over what people say that film tries to do and actually watch a film that does do what it sets out to do is a little film called Positive ID. Not positive. I've recommended this before, but um, I've just been watching so many Choi Hark movies. I don't really have any recent watches, but this one I saw early last month. Uh, It's about a woman who is uh, dealing with the aftermath of having been sexually assaulted and she takes it upon herself to start a new fake life so that she can potentially track down the man who did this to her and enact revenge. And uh won't say where it goes from there, but uh, for an excellent harrowing look at grief and the effects of being a survivor... And what that can do to you um, and whether or not that you could ever find any sort of restitution. Uh, It's just uh, it's an incredible uh, accomplishment and one that bests promising young woman in every way. Jake, Jake, does she call the police? Has she tried that? No, (laughs) she does not set up prearranged text messages to call the police. Um, But uh, I'm all out of options. That's all you can do. It's no, it's it's so good um check it out positive id I'm looking for, yeah it's it, i'm gonna be watching it very soon as part of, part of my 86 watch and i'm very excited yeah yeah no no joke i literally have uh a, a box from my last kino order that i just opened up because i was moving and I, I didn't get around to it 
and positive ideas sitting like 12 inches away from me, just on top of the box. I can see it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very excited to watch that one too. There you go. Um, yeah. Good stuff, man. Uh, this week I'm putting over, I'm putting over Hong Kong rescue. Uh, we, 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 we dragged him a little <laughs> bit cause my boys got some long ass shipping times, but here's the deal. We've talked about this on Joy Hawk episodes. I'm sure, uh, in the past, we talked about it this week. Uh, we certainly talked about it on, uh, during our Johnny toe series, but the fun thing about Hong Kong cinema is you watch these films uh, and the versions that you're watching, they look like dog shit because they're from some VHS rip or something horrible. And you go, oh my God, this is brilliant. Why isn't there a, a restored high definition version of this? And you get really upset about it. And the answer is because I, I don't fucking know, man. It's like a rights nightmare. Just there's some shit going on. So what do you do? Well, Hong Kong Rescue exists. So there was a guy who lives on the West coast somewhere. And he, I don't know how he has access to it, but he has access to um, either high definition scans or he does his own scans. I'm not sure how he does it, but basically he takes these neglected films that we've gotten dog shit versions of for God knows how long, or some that have never had any sort of uh, DVD or high definition release. And he restores them to the best of his abilities. He compiles all the special features that he can to get that he can all together and he makes like the ultimate version of a movie where an official version doesn't exist does he have the rights to these movies uh, probably not no i actually i know he doesn't but <laughs> that being said uh no one else is touching this stuff so who's gonna come after him probably no one uh he does he does amazing work now the downside to that is uh he will enthusiastically give us email updates but uh, because he is simply one man, um, uh, your shipping time is, I would say, anywhere between four to six months before you receive an order. So I recommend it, don't don't just buy one or two things. You got to go in there and say, I'll, t I'll take everything and then just get it all at once. Because if you try and make multiple orders, it's just not going to happen. But is six months the average, would you say, Jake? I know you've ordered some stuff from him before. I did. I ordered last August. I ordered Hard Boiled and Peking Opera Blues in August, and they arrived in January of this year. So about five to six months for two films was the average. And uh, I think mm -hmm. the killer might have uh, imploded his website. But um, it's I mean, once I watched those two films, I was like, oh, this is well worth the wait because it's just it's every like audio track you could hope for every subtitle track, every special feature cold from every single edition that's ever existed it's it's like the it's beyond definitive what he does um mm -hmm. it, you just got to give him time and it, they'll get they'll get to you yeah it's like it's like bougie boutique piracy i love it it's really cool shit uh and, and it gets the essence of you know why we have to grab torrents or jack easton download links to so much of this shit it's because it really does like it's in it, it gets neglected and it, it gets lost in rights hell and it isn't fair that someone just can't easily access something as beautiful as uh, Time and Tide or, uh, you know, Shanghai Blues or any of the other movies that we've watched for this series. So um, or, you know, Norman J. Warren for that matter. But thankfully, uh, he was rescued by Indicator. So Inseminoid uh, is available in high definition. That being said, uh, if you enjoyed this episode or if you're enjoying our, our Troy Hawk series, uh, do us a big favor. There's a couple of links in the description of this podcast. One will take you to our iTunes page. So uh, if, if you're digging the podcast, do us a huge favor. Just click that link. Give us five stars and a little written review on iTunes. It'll take you probably like three seconds. 
uh, helps our visibility out. So if you could do that, awesome. Uh, also, there's a link to our Patreon if you want to throw us a couple bucks. Podcasting is expensive. Uh, you know, you gotta, we got to get microphones. we got to pay for hosting. It's, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough out here for a podcaster. I've been saying that for a long time. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but seriously, um, if you, if you sign up any amount of money that you donate, uh, it could be, you know, three bucks, could be 20 bucks, whatever. Um, I will send you from my personal collection, a movie. So it could be a, a, a VHS tape, DVD, Blu-ray box set. You don't know what you're getting. You're getting something in the mail though. So that's cool. Plus you'll gain access to a bunch of exclusive content written stuff, exclusive podcasts, all kinds of things. And again, you're helping us out and you know, it's the shit's hard sometimes. So, uh, thank you. We appreciate you. Um, and other than that, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, uh, recommendations for future episodes, you can email us optimismvaccine at gmail.com. And, uh, the schmuck who was hosting for the past two weeks, will probably answer you. Uh, or you can tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine and, uh, I don't know, yell at, yell at us. Tell us why we're wrong, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I think that pretty much wraps things up. So, Jake, last word's yours. How about them movies? <laughs> you really thought about that one.